Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Well, there's an old saying that says time flies when you're having fun. And so this week I did a few calculations and I worked out there's been 146 days since we started here at Follow Baptist Church. Uh, who was here on day one? There's a few regulars away today, but there's a lot of people that were here on day one. And I don't know about you, but it feels like it's gone like that. It feels like almost like it was yesterday or a week ago or something like that. So 146 days since we started at Follow Baptist Church. Now bear that in mind and now... Uh, understand that it's 26 days till Christmas. And so if 146 days went like that, then 26 days is going to go really quickly. And I just gave some of you a mild heart attack because you're thinking, I haven't done my Christmas shopping yet and I'm not ready. And there's so many things to do. Uh, who here's finished their shopping for Christmas? Excellent. Not a single male's hand went up. Uh, all the females are organized. That's great. But this time of year, it just seems ridiculous. There's so much on. There's presentation nights. Uh, at our school, there's uh, 150,000 of them, of which we go to all of them. There are things like um, deadlines that need to be done. There's Christmas parties. There's celebrations. And it's really busy, busy, busy. And it's hectic, hectic, hectic. And I think it's really important that we just slow down at this time of year and remind ourselves of the actual reason for the season, that we are celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, the Christmas story. Today we start a Christmas series and we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2 of the Gospel of Luke and the series is titled, All Things Are Possible and it really comes from verse 37 of the first chapter that says, nothing is impossible with God. Now I love the title of this series because it's a title of faith that reminds us of the God that we serve. He's a God that we can trust, he's a God that we can rely on, he's a God that we can put our faith in and Christmas time is a great time to come to him afresh and be reminded of the incredible gift of his son. I think as we explore Luke chapter 1 and 2 in the next five weeks, we're going to see God's supernatural hand in the lives of ordinary, everyday people like you and me. And we're going to say God, we're going to see God move in their life in a way that will see his will done on earth. And so I think the very first Christmas reminds us that with God, all things are possible. And so today, the big idea of this message, and it's always good to have a big idea from the passage, and the big idea of this message is that as we look back into the Christmas story, we're reminded that God is faithful. But as we look forward in the Christmas story, we're also reminded that we serve a God who's able. And I think that's a a really powerful thing for us to remember. And I think at this time of year, it's important for us to actually do both of those things. As we get to sort of November, December, we start to reflect on the 12 months that are gone and we start to, to look back and we see all the big ways and all the little ways through the good times and through the difficult times that God has been faithful and we're reminded, man, God is so good. All the things this year that he's taught us, all the ways that we've changed and grown, all the ways that he's provided for us, all the achievements that have happened this year, we can stop and we can go, thank you, God, you're incredible. But it's also that time of year where we're kind of in the, in the middle zone, where we're not only stopping and reflecting and saying, thank you, God, but it's also time to start looking forward 
and asking God about 2016 for the 12 months to come. Asking questions like, God, what areas in, in the next 12 months do I need to grow in? What are you calling me to do? How do you want me to step out in faith in the next 12 months? And really, as we do this, it's a reflection of what I really hope and pray we become as a church. That we're always a church that looks back and is grateful, knowing that all the things that have happened are very little to do with us and very much to do with God. So we stop regularly and say, thank you, God. But I also hope that we're a church that looks forward in faith, a church that is willing to be risk-taking, faith-filled, spirit-led people as we look ahead to the future with faith that God is going to use us in extraordinary ways. As a church leadership team, we're starting to explore some of those things for 2016 and starting to kind of uh, seek God's heart on what he would have us do as a church next year. And some of the goals that he's laying on our hearts so far, some of them are, are very achievable, uh, some of them are very uncomfortable. And I believe God wants us to actually step out and trust him, knowing that with him all things are possible. And so we're called to be a people of faith. And so it's an important time of year to look back and to look forward. And that's the title of the message today, Look Back look forward. And so we pick up the story at the start of Luke's gospel. And we see that we're right on the cusp of a really exciting time in history. We're really transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And what we see in the passage that was read out so well by Nathan this morning, we see the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And what we see is the commencement of supernatural events that show us that the promises of God in the Old Testament are actually about to be fulfilled in the New Testament in the midst of human history. Verse 1 of the passage says that one of the reasons this gospel was written was to record the things that have been fulfilled, fulfilled amongst them. And so today we're going to get started by looking at this story of God working in the lives of these two ordinary people who eventually become the parents of this child called John. Now the passage today starts by identifying the author of the gospel of Luke and surprise, surprise, it's Luke the same guy who wrote the book of Acts. And as we looked at at the start of the book of Acts, uh, we understand that Luke's not an eyewitness to the events he's writing about. Um, what he is is what we would call today an investigative journalist. It's a hard word to say, investigative journalist. And so he would have uh, met at the cafe with his iPad and uh, sat down with all the people that saw these events. Uh, there was like a first wave and then a second wave. Some of you missed it, some of you still haven't got it. That's okay. <laughs> sitting down at the iPad at the cafe, meeting with people who had seen these events that we're now reading about. And after meeting with all these people and, and hearing their stories, it says in verse 4 that he sits down to write an orderly account for someone called Theophilus, so that this young man would know with certainty the things he had been taught. And so in verse 5, uh, after that introduction, we get to this story about these two people. And in verse 5, uh, he gives a subtle indication of when this book was written. And he says these words. It says, in the time of Herod, the king of Judea. Now, when we read a passage like this, it's so easy just to skip over that. It's not really relevant to us. We want to get to the actual story. So we kind of skip over a sentence like that. But it's actually really important that we don't. Because in those few words, there is so much for us to understand. First of all, it gives us an anchor on when this is actually happening. And we know from church history, it's around about 6 BC. But it also gives us an idea of what um, life would have been like in that particular time of history. As we look through church history, we read about King Herod's time. And uh, particularly in the later years, we get to understand that 
his rule was a dark and bloody time in uh, the history of Israel, in history. King Herod was known as Herod the Great. And in some ways, he was great. He was a, a great architect, uh, some great building programs uh, under his leadership, including the reconstruction of the temple at Jerusalem. Uh, one of the quotes I read about in this week says that Herod was the greatest builder in Jewish history, which is quite um, a rap on him. But we also know that Herod was not so great in many ways. He was known to be very cruel and very violent. Uh, let me read some of the other quotes I read about him this week. He was a madman who murdered his own family and a great many rabbis. He was the evil genius of the Judean nation. He was prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. And so we're reading about a guy who had a conflict resolution, which was really effective. His conflict resolution was if anyone disagreed with his authority, he'd simply just wipe them out. Uh, including members of his immediate family. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You are picturing people in your immediate family. And you are thinking, that's not a bad idea. Life would be so much easier. I just want to say on the record, for those who are listening on the podcast, I'm not endorsing that. I'll leave that up to you. But what I am saying is this, that this man was the sort of guy that you would not want to cross. And so Israel are living in the final years of Herod's leadership And they are living under the dark shadow of this, in inverted commas, great king who was actually not so great. And so it's into this environment, it's into this uncertainty that God steps into the darkness and he initiates a chain of supernatural events that lead to the birth of a king who is truly great. We know him as the king of kings. We know him as the lord of lords. We know he's not cruel and harsh like Herod. We know he's the prince of peace. We say that he's a name above every other name. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's the reason for the season. And so here we are today in 2015 on the cusp of Christmas 2015. But these people were on the cusp of the first Christmas, an event that defines life as we know it. And so living at this particular time is uh, Zechariah the priest and his wife called Elizabeth. Now, we read uh, not too far into the passage and we find out what sort of people these are. They are wonderful people. They're godly people. They had a great faith heritage. It says that Zechariah was a priest in the priestly division of Abijah and Elizabeth was a descendant of the Old Testament priest Aaron. And so a great faith heritage It says in the passage that they were righteous in the sight of God and it says they observed all of God's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, I get asked to write character references for people a lot and usually they're people that I'm very happy to do that for. Sometimes someone asks me and I think, my goodness, what am I going to write here? But most of the time when people ask me to write a character reference, I'm really happy to do it because I know them well and, and I'm happy to give them a character reference to their employer or for the mission trip they're going on or, or whatever it may be. What we're seeing in this passage is a glowing character reference. This passage records information about these people that says they are people of the utmost character and integrity. They're godly and following him in every area of their lives. But it also becomes clear that there's one thing in their life that was very difficult for them. And the thing that was difficult is that they were now older in age, they were older in years, but they'd never been able to have a child. Now, in our culture, um, there are many people in this same sort of boat, and there are some options that people can take. Uh, things like IVF and things like adoption 
um, avenues are available. They're not always easy, but they are available and it is possible. But back in this day and age, those were not readily available. And if you couldn't have a kid, then that was just seen to be your lot in life. And so I think for these godly people, this would have been something they would have carried every single day. It would have been absolutely painful. And I think there's three reasons why this would have been incredibly hard for these uh, godly couples, godly couple. First one is just the fact that they couldn't have children. I mean, if you're a parent here today, you will know that children are an incredible blessing. Um, You're broke, there's frustrating days, all of that, but there is so much joy when you have a child. And all the the difficult days and all the sacrifices we make and, and all the ways we've got to spend money and lay our lives down are absolutely worth it because the joy of having children is tenfold what it is that we've got to lay down or even more. It's a great joy to have kids. And for me, some of the greatest moments in my life have been around things that have happened with our children. And I thank God every day for the gift of having children. And so this couple would have had that pain, that they couldn't have kids. The second reason it would have been very painful for them is that they lived in a time of history where they were waiting for the Messiah to come. There was an expectation that a Messiah was soon to be born and this Messiah would be a political leader and a military leader and a a spiritual leader. And they expected that this man would rise up and he would help overthrow Rome and he would help establish the kingdom of God on earth. And so these uh, godly people were waiting for that to happen. And the fact that they couldn't have kids means that they are discounted from possibly being used by God to be the parents of the Messiah or even be ancestors of the Messiah. And so that would have compounded their pain. The third reason it would have been really painful is that there are people today that can't have kids, but generally speaking, there is a lot of sympathy and empathy for those people. We pray for them, we support them, we encourage them, we understand how difficult it would be. But in their culture, it was the exact opposite. If you couldn't have kids, there was a sense of um, society, societal sort of shame. You were seen as outcasts. In fact, verse 25 used the word disgrace. It was seen as a disgrace. And so you can almost sense their pain. This godly couple serving God with their lives and they can't have children. And we sort of feel their pain as we think about them. But one of the things I find most admirable about this couple is that in the midst of this constant pain... They just keep faithfully serving God. And it's a reminder to us that God is good all the time. And God is good even in the circumstances of life that are difficult. We need to understand that we live in a fallen, broken world. But we have the hope of Jesus Christ that one day it won't be that way. But in the meantime, even as Christians, there's no guarantee that life will be easy. But there is a guarantee that God is good. And that he loves us. And that he will never leave us or forsake us. And so Zechariah is serving as a priest, even despite the pain in his heart. Verse 8, it tells us one day Zechariah was serving as a priest before the Lord. Now, back then there were thousands of priests, thousands of priests. And three days, uh, three times a day, they would go to the temple and they would bring an offering to God. Now, what would happen each time is that one priest would go into the temple and he would light incense as a sign that they were fully committed to God. Now, the rest of the priests and the rest of the people would stay outside the temple and only one priest would go in each time. Now, the way they decided who would go in is that they cast lots. And on this particular day, the lot was cast and it landed on Zechariah. And so this is a big moment in his life. He is going into the temple to represent the people before God. He is going in to light the incense and the role that he had to do was to go in there to light that candle and to pray before God for the redemption of Israel and the coming of the Messiah. 
And so here he is doing this on this particular day. And it tells us in verse 11, as he's doing that, an angel of the Lord appears and goes, ah, like that. She didn't jump. I was hoping she would. She didn't jump. But anyway, Zechariah was in the temple and I don't know what happened, but this angel appears and it says he is gripped with fear. Didn't work with Christine, but I gave Catalina a heart attack, so it kind of worked. But he's gripped with fear. And in verse 13, the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. Now, I've read this passage a million times, slight exaggeration, but a lot of times. And I've always assumed when I read the passage that the prayer that was being answered here was Zechariah's prayer for a son. But as I read the passage this week, I actually think as I studied it that that's not the prayer the Lord heard that day. Because Zechariah's role was to go into the temple and to pray for the redemption of Israel, the coming of the Messiah. And so I find it very unlikely that in this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where he's to go and represent the people of God, that he goes in there and gets on his knees and lights the candle and then prays about his son. And I also think it's very unlikely because as you read through the rest of the passage, it becomes clear that Zechariah has lost any hope of having a child. He thinks he's too old. He thinks there's no hope of that happening, that it's impossible. And so I think he's actually in there, in the temple, praying for the redemption of Israel. And that's the prayer that God hears and responds to. Now, there's so much in this passage that we can learn about prayer. But I believe that the aspect that's most important for us to remember is that when we pray, we need to pray according to God's will, not ours. I know if you feel this way, but so often... Um, I find myself doing this and I see it in the lives of other people. But so often we seem to live life like uh, this life is all about us. That we're the most important person and everything in life is just about us and our happiness and our whatever. And what we tend to do when we do that is we magnify ourselves and we kind of shrink God. And the call on our lives as Christians is to do the exact opposite. That we're actually to become less so that God can be magnified. John the Baptist said himself that I must become less so that Christ should become more. I love the way that Francis Chan puts it in his book, Crazy Love. I'm going to read you a little story he shares or a little illustration, which I think is really powerful. He says, suppose you're an extra in an upcoming movie. You'll probably scrutinize that one scene where hundreds of people are milling around just waiting for that two-fifths of a second when you see the back of your head. (laughs) Maybe your mum and your closest friend get excited about that two-fifths of a second with you. Maybe. But no one else will realise it's even you. Even if you tell them, they won't care. Let's take it a step further. What if you rent out the theatre on opening night and you invite all of your friends to come and see this new movie about you? People will watch the movie and they will say, you're an idiot. How could you possibly think that movie is about you? And yet many Christians are even more delusional than the person I've just been describing. So many of us think and live like the movie of life is all about us. It's a great illustration, a great little story. And it reminds us that God's got a plan and God's plan is eternal and it's massive. He's Lord over all creation and our earthly life is one tiny little bit on the spectrum of eternity and yet we live like this is all that matters. And I think God wants to remind us today that there's something bigger going on and that our life is like a mist and a vapor that is here one moment and then it's gone. 
And our role in that mist and that vapor and that tiny moment in history is to live our lives and to wring out our lives for the glory of God so that he would be lifted up and praised and honored in everything that we do in life. We're designed to play a part in God's eternal plan. But how often do we make this life all about us? And I think our prayer is a bit of a giveaway, isn't it? If we were to look at our prayers and what they are regularly, we're praying for our new job promotion, our new car, we want to be healed, we want to have a child, we want to be happy. And and if we were to take a little, uh, I guess, record of our prayers, I wonder how many of our prayers would be about our own needs and our own wants and our own desires and how many prayers that we pray would actually be about the kingdom of God and God's will being done on earth. So perhaps when we pray, our first focus should be asking God what he actually wants in our circumstance. Perhaps we need to ask questions like, how can I live for you in the midst of this struggle? How do you want me to grow this year? What do you want me to do? What's your plan for my life? And how does it fit in to your bigger plan? How can your will be done on earth as it is in heaven through my life? And so in this account, Zechariah was praying for God's will to be done. He's praying for Israel and the coming of the Messiah. But this is the part I love most about this part of the story. God hears his prayer for Israel and he hears that Zechariah is concerned about God's will and he's praying that way. And so he answers his prayer and he responds by setting in place a chain of events that will lead to the birth of the Messiah. But at the same time, he also meets the deep desire of Zechariah's heart to have a son. I love that God's got this massive plan. He's a God of all eternity and yet he's the God who's interested in in you and me. He's the God that hears our prayers. I just love that about God. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The first bit is to delight in the Lord, that he becomes our everything, that he becomes all of our hope, our greatest source of joy, our number one priority, our greatest friend, our greatest refuge, that each and every day we are in awe of him as we seek him and pray to him and we get to the point in life that if we were to lose absolutely everything precious to us, the one thing that we would hold on to is Christ. That's what it is to delight in the Lord. He's so good. He's so gracious. He died in our place when we didn't deserve it. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Don't worry about what the world worries about, chasing about what you have and don't have. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. But he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what? All these things will be added to you as well. See, our job as Christians is not to do what the world does and worry and stress about every little thing, but we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that as we do that, he's a faithful God who will not only answer our prayers, but he will meet our every need. God hears Zechariah's prayer for Israel. He not only answers that, but he also gives him the desire of a heart to have a son. In the passage, it tells us that the son will be a great gift. Verse 14. It says, He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. It tells us in the passage, you'll be filled from birth with the Holy Spirit. And then there's four things that he will do. The first one is this, that he will help the backsliders come back to the Lord. I don't know about you, but I meet people all the time that have had a church background and they had a faith in God once and something happened at church or something happened in life and now they don't walk with God at all. And I don't tell you, that breaks my heart. 
And I think what an amazing thing that, that we could be used as a church to bring some of those people back to the Lord. That God would actually have some of those people sitting here on a Sunday that have walked away from God, but God has done something in their heart through us and they've come back. Well, John the Baptist, that's one of the things that was going to happen in his life, that he would help the backsliders come back to the Lord. He would also turn the hearts of the parents back to the children. It says he will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And finally, he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, the John we're talking about in this passage, of course, is John the Baptist. We know from Scripture that he was Jesus' cousin. We know he was a prophet. We know he was a little bit unorthodox. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that he wore camel hair and his diet was locusts and honey. Can you, can you feel the crunch in your mouth right now? He's one guy that never, ever had to share his lunch. No one ever asked him to share the lunch. He just ate, you know, wherever he went, just grabbed some locusts and crunch, crunch, have some honey, make them sweet. You should try it when you go home today. He's the kind of guy that perhaps if we saw him in the CBD, most people would see him and they would cross the street and they would walk on the other side of the road. He was a wild, woolly looking guy. And how often do we judge people by their appearances? This man was a great man of God. And he was an answer to prophecy. In the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi, it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And so here's this man, a fulfillment of prophecy, a forerunner, preparing people for Jesus to come. John, uh, Jesus himself later in life describes John the Baptist as the greatest man who was ever born of a woman. It's a pretty big rap from the saviour of the universe, isn't it? To say that about you is a, is a pretty amazing thing. That's the kind of thing you'd want recorded in scripture, that you are a great man. What I found fascinating as I was studying this passage this week is, as I looked at the names of the three main characters, um, Zechariah, Elizabeth and John, I was blown away by what their names actually meant. You know, I think names are really significant and can be quite powerful and sometimes quite prophetic. Uh, my name is Luke, for those that don't know, and uh, my name means uh, a bringer of light. Now, when my parents named me years ago, um, they were probably just hoping that, um, you know, one day I might become a Christian and, and one day I might, you know, not end up in jail and um, all those sort of humble hopes that we have as parents. Um, but now... Um, you know, God's called me into ministry and each and every week I get to stand up and to share the gospel and to talk about Jesus who's the light of the world. Uh, isn't it amazing? Luke, the bringer of light, and now God is using me in that way. Now, I don't want to get too super spiritual about it, but I think sometimes names can be very significant. Uh, we have a three-year-old son, most of you would be aware, and his name is Lenny. And uh, I personally believe that his name came from God. Uh, most of you would know that Lenny is named after a footballer. Um, Lenny Hayes, who was a champion footballer, tough as nails, hard as big as a lion, one of my favourite footballers, and uh, he is named after Lenny Hayes. Now, you might think that doesn't sound very godly, um, but he doesn't play for the demons, so that's a good start. Uh, but bear with me. 2010, Kim and I uh, were trying to have a child, a fourth child, and um, we'd already had three, and we were trying, and uh, it wasn't working, and so Kim went to the doctor. And the doctor told her that she had unexplained infertility. And so I just convinced Kim that we should keep practicing because practice makes perfect. And so that's what we did to my uh, great excitement. And I'll stop right there. Um, but we kept practicing and we know that 
Uh, we had a doctor's report, but we also serve the ultimate physician, and so his report is greater than any earthly doctor can give us. And so we just trusted that if God wanted us to have another child, that he would make it happen. Now, we were um, in faith talking about names for our kids, and in faith we were even discussing boys' names. We had three daughters, so I, in the back of my mind I wondered whether we could even produce a boy, but in faith we were talking about girls' names and also boys' names. And I like the name Lenny. And uh, I don't know if you remember back that far, but uh, back in those days, um, Kim wasn't convinced about the name, just as a, a matter, a note to make there, she wasn't convinced. But back in those days, St Kilda could actually play football. And um, <laughs> they actually were in the grand final in 2010. Now, um, Kim said to me, uh, if Lenny Hayes gets the best on ground in the grand final, the Norm Smith medal... Um, we will call our boy, if we have a boy, Lenny. Now, I think she thought it was a pretty safe bet. <laughs> First of all, we know that St Kilda don't win premierships, so the chance of getting a best on ground uh, from a team that never wins a premiership is very unlikely. We'd also had three daughters, so the chance of having a boy was also, in our heads, unlikely, and so I think she thought it was a throwaway line to shut me up about this name, Lenny, and when it didn't happen, we wouldn't have to call our boy Lenny. Now, 2010, the grand final happened, and, and according to the prophecy, St Kilda didn't win the premiership <laughs> again, but they did the best they can possibly do, and that's a draw. In 2010, they drew with Collingwood, so you, as a St Kilda supporter, you go and buy the DVD and you watch it over and over again, <laughs> hoping that the result will change, but it never does. But they had a draw, and that day, uh, most people thought um, a trader by the name of Brendan Goddard, um, for all the Essendon supporters out there, um, w- was the best on ground. He took this specky, he kicked the goal with a, minute, uh, you know, a couple of minutes to go, and, and they thought he'd be best on ground. And so they get up to announce the best on ground, and they say the best on ground, Norm Smith medalist, of course, is Lenny Hayes from the St Kilda Football Club. (laughs) Now, I was watching it elsewhere, because Kim has zero, actually, she's in the negative when it comes to interest in AFL, and so she had no interest at all, but I just got a message that just said Lenny on the screen. And uh, it was a miracle that she even saw it, because she never watches the grand final, but she has seen that he got the Norm Smith medal, and at that point, I said, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) We're another step closer. This is great. And so I was convinced, and you may not be, but I was convinced it was a name that came from God. Divine intervention, if you like. And from that point, we found out that Lenny's name actually means lion-hearted. And we are really praying that it will become prophetic. That one day, just like our daughters, that our son would be a man of God with a heart after Jesus. And that one day we will look back and go, you know what? God knew what he was doing, even if it was through football, (laughs) of which Kim thinks nothing good can come from. (laughs) But as I looked at the names of these three characters in this particular story, I was blown away. The name Zechariah actually means the Lord remembers. The name Elizabeth means my God is the absolutely faithful one. And the name John means a gracious gift of God. Isn't it incredible? And you look at the names. That before the beginning of human history, God knew what was going to happen in this story. And these names are given to these people at the start of their lives. And they end up being quite prophetic. And so what God had in mind from all of eternity is now being revealed to Zechariah in this moment. And it's fair to say he doesn't respond that well. In verse 18, it says, Zechariah said, I am old. And being the polite husband he is, he said, my wife is along in years as well. It's a polite way of saying she's ancient like me. There's no chance that woman's going to be producing baby anytime soon. 
But I want you to notice in the passage that Gabriel doesn't respond with surprise or doubt or fear. It's not like he goes, oh, really? You're that old? Gee, I wish you had told us before I announced that you're going to have a baby. Like, I mean, maybe God got that wrong. Maybe it was Zechariah in the next town. Uh, Sorry, I interrupted your day. Just go on with it. And maybe God just has to go back holding the universe in the palm of his hand. I mean, he couldn't change your situation. Now, Gabriel doesn't respond like that. Zechariah says, I'm old. My wife's ancient. Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God and I have been told to tell you this news. You might think it's over, pal, but I'm here in the presence of the Almighty God and you need to know that in Him, all things are possible. All things are possible. And so what are the things in your life that you've given up on? Finding a husband or a wife, having a child, having a breakthrough, being used by God. What are the things that you need to go back to God and say, God, I know with you all things are possible. As we read the rest of this passage, we discover that Zechariah is struck dumb for his disobedience. He can't speak until John is born. But we also see that the miraculous occurs and Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist, the forerunner for Christ. Now, at the start of this message, I said that the big idea was that we need to look back and know that God is faithful and look forward and know that he is able. In this passage, I think that's where Zechariah failed. Zechariah failed. He was a righteous man. He was a spiritual man. He knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. He knew that God had been faithful. He was the God of the Exodus. He was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. He knew that this same God opened the womb of Sarah at 90 years of age. He knew that he was the same God who opened the womb of barren women, Rebecca and Hannah. And yet while he knew God was faithful in the past, he failed to trust that God was able in the future. I think we're often the same. We serve an almighty God who spoke and the world was created. And yet how often do we make a list of reasons in our head as to why we can't achieve certain things? Why we're not talented enough or worthy enough or good enough? And why our circumstances can't change? Why it's not realistic? Why we can't do something? Why we can't? Why we won't? Why it's too hard? Why we don't have enough? And we tend to have this default position of doubt and fear. But I'm praying that God will help me to be a person who has a different default position. A default position that's so much higher. It's not a default position of fear, but it's a default position of faith. And in that position, we stand there not because we have any confidence in ourselves. We're not looking back at our limitations going, yeah, well, if I based it on that, then nothing would happen. But I actually stand uh, as a child of the living God. And with that God, he can do all things. And so that all things are actually possible. And I really pray that we'll be that kind of church as well. Church, he was amazing back then. He's amazing right now. And he will be amazing in the future. He's the same God yesterday. He's the same God today. And he's the same God forever. So as we pray according to his will, as we embrace the mission and purpose he has for each of our lives, understanding that it's a small part of a much bigger plan and purpose to see his kingdom come. As we look back and remind ourselves that God is faithful, we need to also look forward in faith knowing that not only is he faithful, but he's able in every circumstance of our lives. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Lord God, we thank you. Thank you for your word and we believe what it says. We believe, Lord, that you can do all things, that nothing is impossible with you, but in fact, all things are possible. And so, Lord, today we repent for the times that we say we believe that, but we don't live like we do. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us
to be people not of fear, but of faith. And so as we consider what you're calling us to do in the next 12 months, individually and as a church, Lord, I pray that the doubt and fear would start to disappear as we put our faith in you and say, Lord, if this is your will, you'll make it happen. And so, Lord, I pray that as we pray, we're not just praying for our own will to be done, but we would pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray that you'd use us as a church. Lord, I pray that many people would come to know you as a result of you placing us here in officer, in this region, Lord, that many people would hear your word, would hear the gospel, and that you would convict them and challenge them by your Holy Spirit, that they would come to know you. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.